Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Pagans Tonight Radio Network, the voice of the pagan world. Pagans Tonight is sponsored by Witchschool.com, your anyone, anytime, anywhere magical education. Welcome to Nature Folk. This is Selena Fox. And on Tuesday night, each week, we have our Circle Internet radio shows, our podcasts. I do Nature Folk, and we're followed by Circle Talk. Thanks to Witch School International for their support of our Circle Radio networking and broadcasting. And thanks to David and Jeanette Ewing and Deborah Rose, Circle Sanctuary Ministers that work with me in doing our Circle Radio Ministry. Tonight on Nature Folk, we continue our series on spiritual journeys. Tonight, we explore spiritual journaling. And I begin with some words that I have written in my own spiritual journal about this process. Spiritual journaling can take a variety of forms and can be a powerful aid to many types of spiritual practices. It can be a spiritual practice in of itself. When one journals, one sets in place the inner workings, expressions of mind, mood, body, actions, soul. By making visible through writing thoughts, feelings, doings, sensations, insights, dreams, wishes, and other personal processes, we are able to identify patterns, connections, inspirations, shadows, delights, and additional ways and work this knowing, this type of reflection for changes, for healing, for evolution. The realm of the mind is vast. Spiritual journaling helps with explorations and understandings. It is a way to learn, to remember, to conceptualize, to transform. Tonight we're going to take a look at a variety of types of spiritual journals. We'll also take a look at some good practices for doing spiritual journaling, creating and maintaining 
caring for a spiritual journal. And we'll also take a look at ways of incorporating spiritual journaling into daily life, into the rhythms of one's own way of connecting with spirituality and evolving. There are many types of spiritual journals, and I use the term spiritual journal as an all-encompassing term to include a variety of types of spiritual journals, sometimes known as workbooks. Within Wiccan spirituality, instead of the term spiritual journal, you most likely will encounter the term book of shadows. Sometimes people talk about their spiritual diary, their spiritual journal, as a book of light and shadows. The name book of shadows is pretty commonplace across different traditions. And the concept of shadows represents mysteries, a place to set in place one's ceremonies and other ritual materials as as well as one's experiences of working with them and to include insights, visions, dreams, uh, many different forms of expression that are part of spiritual and magical life. Some types of books of shadows are a combination of a spiritual diary in which one writes one's own perceptions and experiences, records what one has done and how it works with material that has been created by self and or passed on by others. Indeed, some Wiccan traditions have Book of Shadows that are a compilation of rituals that have been handed down across time and across different branches of a tradition. Other book of shadows are totally created by the practitioner, inspired by material that one has encountered, sometimes adapted from some other rituals and meditations, chants, prayers, variety of different types of magical workings that one has encountered through classes and readings, through exploration on the Internet, in libraries, in archives, passed on through oral traditions. Book of Shadows can take many types of forms, 
if it's going to include material that has been created by others and that is being transmitted uh, to people within a tradition, often that material is in one section of the book and then there's either a separate volume or a place, depending on how the book is constructed, where one can make one's own personal notes. In some traditions, the rituals, the invocations, the meditations, the charms, the spells, the other sacred material that's been passed down is passed down in photocopy way or in this electronic age through digital files. Some traditions require the practitioner of that tradition to actually write all the material into one's own book in one's own hand. So you're going to see a variety of different types of Book of Shadows approaches. And it really does depend on personal inclination and situation as well as the protocols of any tradition or path that one has encountered and that one is aligned with. There's another type of spiritual journal called a grimoire, very similar to a book of shadows, only rather than being more Wicca focused, it's a term that's been around much longer and goes back to at least the medieval period. It is a magician's or sorcerer's or wizard's or witch's workbook. It has a variety of different rituals, spells, charms, um, talisman drawings, amulet instructions, detailed information about magical practice. Some have been translated into English, and for English speakers, it's more widely available. Some of the old grimoires are in Latin or in some type of script. Sometimes it's Theban script or some other type of magical writings. Grimoires may be in a variety of different languages, same with books of shadows depending on where the material has come from and what the language choice and preference is of the practitioner. Grimoires typically are material that's put together in a particular order and then if one is making that grimoire part of one's own book of enchantment which is another name for a magical workbook, one will then put additional material that one encounters either in a separate volume or if it takes the form of a book, 
with many pages that can be added all in one large um, tome. There is the Magical Diary. A Magical Diary shares much in common with the Book of Shadows and a grimoire. It is used by most people, though, as more of a personal rendering of magical practice and what one has tried out, one's thoughts, one's visions, and that typically will have some information in about the types of ceremonies and practices that one has done, but the emphasis is more on recording experiences, sensations, thoughts, feelings, actions, and how effective the different things one has done have been, and the feelings and reflections as one navigates one's spiritual path. A magical diary and a spiritual workbook are interchangeable terms for many people. And with a spiritual workbook, that's an even more general term. And there may be people who do not consider their spiritual practice magical per se, um, but may share many things in common with those who do identify with magic practice. A spiritual workbook may have prayers, may have meditations, affirmations. Many people who are involved in new consciousness, new age paths of spirituality will prefer the term of spiritual workbook because it's more encompassing of a variety of different traditions. In addition to these types of spiritual journals, there is the dream journal. And this is a particular type of spiritual journal that's specifically focused on dream work. Writing down dreams, reflecting on dreams, making a note of possible meanings, reflecting on dreams and how one has worked on dreams, making a note of dream craft exercises, making a note of dream guidance. I've kept a dream journal for many years, and over time it has taken a variety of different forms. I have adopted the practice of not only dating the days that and the nights that I've had the dreams, but giving each dream a title, reflecting on its setting, its mood, its energetics, significant symbols, doing some process with the dream, writing about that process, and then looking at the dream as a whole for guidance, making a note of that guidance, and then 
reporting back after putting guidance into action. These techniques for keeping a dream journal can be applied to the other types of spiritual journals as well. And one really excellent practice is to date the entries and make a note of location your entry where you are when you're writing it and if it's about a particular type of vision, dream, ritual experience, making a note of when that happened and where that happened and what one experienced, what one did, and what the impact of that has been. Another type a spiritual journal is what I call the inspirations and ideas log. Now, some people will carry with them a notepad, often a small one, spiral bound, and jot down ideas, inspirations during the course of the day or evening. Others may send themselves an email or a message via um, a smartphone. Um, Still others may do a combination of visual as well as verbal. Perhaps taking a picture of something that has been inspirational, perhaps making a sketch as well as putting some words down about an idea. For some people, they have more than one type of spiritual journal. And indeed, you may find that a good way to begin, especially if you are studying within a particular spiritual tradition, that you have a journal that's specifically for the learnings that you are having and a separate journal specifically for your inner life. It may not only be a dream journal, but dreams and visions. Other people prefer to have just one journal and to incorporate the different types all in one form. So we've taken a look at the different types of spiritual journals, and what I'd like to talk about now are some of the options for how these journals are created and kept. These journals are personal. They are places where you can totally open up and express your deepest, most feelings, your thoughts, your concerns, your joys, your tribulations, your victories, your challenges, your delights. Most people keep their spiritual journals private. Or if they decide 
to publish their spiritual journal. They will publish materials that they're comfortable with sharing and then have some other materials that may not be released at the same time that are kept more private. Some people will do their spiritual journaling online through a blog or through social media posts, kind of micro-journaling, sharing images, um, reporting on experiences. And clearly in the 21st century, that's a form of spiritual journaling that's now an option for many people, especially if they have the technology that permits um, this kind of expression of um, spiritual practice. Most people, though, see the spiritual journal that really goes deep in one's soul's journey as a support being a more private matter. And some will have their book of shadows, their magical diary, their grimoire, their dream journal. They'll actually have files that they keep, sometimes password protected, on their personal computer or mobile device. Some people do audio journaling, and certainly for those that are more verbal, This can be a way to share in stream of consciousness flow feelings, ideas as they are emerging. Some will do a video journal and set down feelings and experiences in that way. One of the challenges of having audio or audio and video, it makes it more difficult to be able to go back and review what one has expressed in the past unless one has some additional AV um, software or equipment that allows fast-forwarding and some other ways of dealing with that technology. Many people still keep some type of written spiritual journal. And what I prefer to do is to have my spiritual journaling in several forms. I do put some of my reflections online in notes, kind of blog on my main Facebook page, Selena Fox Updates. I share some of my chants. Um, through videos on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. I do have some of that that's part of my practice. And I use my computer where I am compiling my writings, my rituals, and a variety of other materials, that, uh, including things that I passed on to others. But most of my deep most spiritual journaling I do by longhand 
in a spiral notebook. And why I use the spiral notebook method is it keeps the pages together. It makes it easy for the journal to lay flat, whether I am putting it on my lap or I am at a table or a desk. And it is not dependent on me having electricity. I am able to go out into the woods. I'm able to uh, be out in a field, out by the seashore, in a variety of environments, and I do not have to concern myself with a battery running down or technology um, possibly glitching on me. I don't have to be so concerned about the atmospheric conditions, if it's very moist or it's very hot and dry, um, if it's very cold, don't have to be concerned about the battery of a device uh, being compromised by environmental conditions. And what I like about the spiral notebook method is that I'm able to flip through and access materials. I've been keeping spiritual journals for years, so there is the very real challenge of now having multiple volumes and not an easy way to index them. Um, I do have, as part of my own practice, periodically going back and reading through journals that I've done in the past, making some additional notes, um, the journal that I'm working on in the present. So for myself, I actually have a variety of different types of spiritual journaling forms, um, but most of the, um, the ones involving technology are adjunct, and the main one that I use is handwritten. Another way of keeping a spiritual journal is by having materials on single pages and sleeving them in some clear plastic protectors, sheet protectors, and putting them in a three-ring binder. Many practitioners prefer the three-ring binder method, especially when there's a need to keep rituals that are done repeatedly in an accessible way and to be able to port, carry them around to different locations. And one of the things about a loose-leaf notebook method is you really can change pages around and you can remove things, you can, if you've revised the ceremony, you can print it out and or photocopy materials and all put them into the book. So that's another uh, versatile method that many people use. I use the three-ring binder method in connection with passage rites. I will 
print out the outline of the ceremony. I'll have all the relevant material for the individuals involved with the ceremony. And I will also make notes about my experience with the planning of the ceremony, with the doing of the ceremony. And I found that really helpful to have all of those materials in a loose-leaf notebook form so that as I'm doing the ceremony, even if I have it totally memorized, I have all the materials collected in one place. One of my spiritual journaling projects right now is starting to compile these individual books into a much larger book. And um, so that's another another form of spiritual journaling that, um, and a method that can be very helpful. When one is going about spiritual journaling, pick what your focus is going to be. Are you going to focus something very specific, such as having an ideas book or log, or a dream journal, or a passage rights journal, or is your focus more general where you're going to have material of many different things that you do in your spiritual life and compile all of that together as well as your perceptions, your feelings, your actions. Once you've made a determination of what your focus is and what format you're going to use, then the next thing to consider is who has access to your journal. Some people keep their journal private throughout their whole life. And then as their life draws to a close, they either pass their journal on to a selected person. It may be somebody who is related by spiritual connection, a student, a teacher, a um, colleague, practitioner. It might be a spouse. It might be um, youth. It might be Um, children, parents, family members, some people choose once they have moved into the final part of their life to have their spiritual journal or journals burned, buried, or sent into the other world in some way rather than preserved. Some of the grimoires that we have in 21st century world today were preserved with the intention to pass on the knowledge and the understandings to future generations. As you think about access to your journal, it is good to think about your life as a whole and to make some choices regarding not only who has access to it, 
when you're alive, but what do you want to have happen to it once you are in the final stages of life and have died? In addition to access, it's important to treat your journal with respect and to do protection work on it, to give it a place to be. Some people will put some type of special spiritual emblem in the front and in the back of the journal. Some, in in addition to a symbol, such as a pentacle, will write some words of protection and blessing. It's a good idea to have a regular place where you keep your journal in whatever form that it takes or formed. And to have a place that you do your journal work at. A primary place and if you do decide to do some journaling during travels, then you have the choice of taking the journal with you, or if it is very large, you may want to get a travel journal specifically for that trip so that should there be some considerations of how much stuff you're lugging around that you will have something that's smaller and more convenient, especially if you're going on some kind of sacred pilgrimage, visiting a variety of sacred sites. You may want to create a spiritual journal specifically for that journey and then either copy that material into your main journal upon your return or have it be its own separate volume. So some additional things to consider. When to journal. If you are starting out with spiritual journaling, my recommendation would be to pick a particular time of day in your daily life and a particular location and a particular form of journal for you to begin with. For example, you get up in the morning, you do your usual routine of getting up. If you want to incorporate dreams within your journaling experience, then before you've really gotten into your day, and it might be while you're sitting in bed or still lying in bed, depending on what form of journal you have, to make some notes in even before you get up. And certainly in my early days of working with a dream journal, that was the way that I taught myself dream recall and dream work was to actually have my dream journal and pen right next to my bed, small light, not a bright light, but a very small light so that 
I needed some illumination to be able to write into the book, I could do that. What my present custom is, is to actually do some dream work while I am still in bed, but not to do any writing down at that point. I've trained myself to retain memory of the dreams and then get up and write down in my journal at a particular desk. So for me, my sacred time is right away in the morning. My sacred place is my study, and my sacred form of the journal is my spiral um, notebook with a pen. In addition to having a regular time and a consistent place for doing spiritual journaling, it is good to have some means to be able to do journaling at other times If you get a flash of insight, if you have a vision, if you happen to take a nap in the middle of the day and an intense dream comes forth that you want to note down, to have some means that you could also journal at other times. Some people prefer to journal at the very end of the day rather than the beginning of the day as a way of bringing closure to the day. Um, If you use a printed form, a handwritten form of journaling, then that can work really well. If you are at a computer screen, that might make it more difficult for you to go to sleep if you are doing screen work right before bed. Most people who are involved in sleep hygiene and uh, sleep health recommend that you disengage from mobile devices, from screens, TV screens, computer screens, cell phone screens, gaming screens, all kinds of screens, at least 30 minutes before going to bed. And that allows one to start shifting into a different frame of consciousness, the light from screens can actually activate um, brain chemistry and be like waking up in the morning. So that's part of the reason that's recommend, um, definitely recommended. Where to do your journaling? Ideally, you're in a place with little, if any, distractions. Being able to have quiet time as you work with your journal is a real blessing. Letting the thoughts, the feelings, the memories, experiences come to the surface and be able to focus on letting that flow out. So ideally, a quiet room, no multitasking, no messaging going on, no music going on, TV news going on, other things, to just create a stillness. 
it's helpful to have a consistent place to do your spiritual journaling because you will be creating a kind of spiritual journaling ritual, going to that place, centering yourself, and then doing your journaling becomes a kind of ritual in itself. And by going to a consistent place for most of your journaling, then you become accustomed to that routine and it's easier for your journaling process to flow. Another thing to be aware of is that after you've been doing journaling for a time and you have some material that you really would like to share with others, to think about how to make that available. And so in addition to having your basic journal, you may want to work with some electronic system of being able to put rituals, reflections, poems, other material that you want to share with another individual or even the whole world by putting it out on the World Wide Web to actually have a means where you can build upon your private journaling to share with others. Some people have actually created books of shadows and other types of journals that have been published in print as well as online. Carl Jung um, kept many of his reflections in an enormous book. And his book not only had writings in it, but colorful illustrations. Early on in my priestess life, one of the people who studied with me, an artist by the name of Dirk Dijkstra, was into the fine arts, an illustrator, and also very crafty. And he actually created his own book of shadows with a letterpress, limited edition, handmade paper, amazing um, crafted book of shadows. In the book, in the back, he had extra pages that were blank for people who got one of these limited edition parts of his book of shadows to put their own notes, their own experiences, their own supplemental material. He hand illuminated the different illustrations in the book. And clearly, out of the different books of shadows and magical journals and diaries that I have received from other people who have passed them on to me or they've been published and they're part of my library, is certainly one of the more labor-intensive as well as... um, It's an art piece. It's really a very fabulous way of crafting. And although he's no longer in his incarnation, his book of shadows lives on because he gave it form and he shared that 
with some select others. So what I'd like to talk about now are what I call challenges and remedies to spiritual journaling. You might feel, oh, I'm really overwhelmed, too many inputs in my life. How can I really take time to do my spiritual journaling today? Well, it's actually at times like that that doing a spiritual journaling process, even if it's only a few minutes, actually can help one deal with the stress and the inputs much better by doing the ritual of centering and reflection. It can calm, it can energize, it can renew, and the journaling process may indeed bring some things to the surface that can be dealt with that will reduce the stress or eliminate it. Time constraints. Oh, I overslept today. I don't have time to do it. Well, okay. Um, Certainly, spiritual journaling should not be a drudge or a chore, but you can keep the momentum of spiritual journaling happening and make it easier to keep doing your spiritual journaling by at least putting the date down and a note, um, little time today, and leave it at that. Having the continuity of a spiritual practice builds a momentum, builds a routine that makes that practice easier to do over time. You might find as you're doing spiritual journaling and there may be things going on in your life that are quite stressful and you really don't want to write about them. Well, that's certainly your choice. Sometimes it's things that we really need to see, that's the shadow part, and deal with that can really be helped by doing some process. And you might find as you sit down to do a spiritual journaling experience that you feel blocked. Well, write about the block. Write about your experiences of dealing with blocks in the past. Sometimes all you need to do is start writing about the process that you're experiencing and then the channel opens up and your expression can be um, present. What I'd like to talk about now are some ways to incorporate spiritual journaling into a larger pattern of spiritual practice. What do you do on a daily basis as part of your spiritual life? Many things may be automatic. Taking a few moments and reflecting on what's right with your life, 
gratitude attitude experiences. You might have a home altar and on a daily basis, kindle incense, candles, do a prayer, do a blessing. You might have a practice where you face the sacred directions and align with them as a centering exercise and ritual. Spiritual journaling can be linked with spiritual practices that you already have underway. For myself, I begin my day reflecting on dreams, then doing some work at my home altar, doing a sacred greeting of the day, sacred circle, sacred sphere, as usually as as the sun is rising, I get up early in the morning, and then I move into journaling. Some people will do journaling every time that they've completed a ritual or a prayer or a meditation. And so the journaling becomes an extension of that practice. Others will work with the journaling as a kind of meditation in of itself. And others will spontaneously journal, um, just having a sense of being able to work with the journal as a way of enhancing the day. Well, you may find that your spiritual journaling work will be facilitated by doing it consistently on a daily basis. That's not the only pattern of practice that's an option. For some people, their spiritual journaling is very much on an as-needed basis, on occasional or sporadic basis. Others may see that spiritual journaling emerges when one gets the sense that one has had a really powerful experience and it is a way of not only noting it down but deepening one's connection with it. And one of the great things about spiritual journaling, by doing spiritual journal work and setting things down in writing and making sketches, um, giving some graphic form, it helps set it in memory. I do think that as part of spiritual journaling work, taking some time out, and you may want to do this every full moon or at the beginning of a month or every new moon, or you may want to do it once a year at the time of your birthday or some sacred spiritual time for you. It is helpful to take some time out on occasion and read through what you have written in the past. 
And as you do so, if you've left some room, and I endeavor to do that, you may make some additional notes there. Or if you're using a method where you have multiple volumes, you may um, be making a note and a second volume as you're reading through the material. And if you do that, and it's two volumes, then make reference for the date of the material that you have worked with. As you go through your journal and review it, what are patterns that you notice? What are some things that you are continuing to work with? What are some experiences that you have that you would like to repeat? You may want to journal about your journal review. Another suggestion is once a year, and I think one's birthday is a really good time for this to happen, is to sit down with your journal or journals, read through them, reflect on your year that you have just completed, and do some visioning for the future. To be at that nexus, at that crossroads of past, eternal present, and possible future. Writing down visions, experiences with meditations, guidance you have received is a way of strengthening your connection with your inner worlds and aiding your ability to memorize and remember important things in your spiritual life. Know that spiritual journaling is a practice that can serve you whatever your path or path of spiritual practice are. And it is my hope that some of the things that I've shared tonight will be of assistance to you in your own spiritual life. So as we think back on our time together with spiritual journaling, reflect on what type of spiritual journaling you've already had experiences with. Reflect on what type of spiritual journaling that you are doing in your present life. and drawing inspiration from ideas and experiences shared here, as well as your own inner guidance. Reflect on what kind of spiritual journey, journaling you may be doing 
and trying out in coming days and nights and weeks and months and years ahead. I invite you now that this spiritual journaling workshop is concluding to consider as follow-up to write about your experiences with this workshop, to write about the spiritual journaling past, present, and possible future. Many blessings as you journey spirituality. Blessed be. And now I invite you to stay tuned for Circle Talk and also to share some of your own um, feedback about tonight's spiritual journaling workshop. You can connect with me on Twitter, Selena underscore Fox, on Instagram, Selena Fox, and on Facebook. Selena Fox update or send me an email Selena at circlesanctuary.org and I invite you to continue your own explorations of spirituality by connecting with our podcast every Tuesday night thank you all for listening Now I invite some members of our Circle Sanctuary Radio team, David and Jeanette Ewing, um, to come on and uh, together or either one and tell us about what we have happening on Circle Talk tonight. Good evening. Good evening. So you got David here. Jeanette's uh, taking care of some business real quick. So um, tonight on Circle Talk, we are going to replay a program that uh, had our circle minister, Deborah Rose, where she welcomed Arthur and Catherine Hines to the show to discuss Welsh traditions, because they're very versed in Welsh traditions and stuff. And it's sort of a tribute in memory of Catherine, who passed away this past January. Yes, and I see tonight's um, podcast or circle talk of as a way of honoring her memory as well as giving support to Arthur, to all of us that are mourning Catherine's passing. And um, I am so thankful for the many um, wonderful times that we've had. There's some more information about her at the Wild Hunt and you can Google her name, Catherine Hines, and you can find more information about her life um, on the World Wide Web. And we'll be doing some memory and tributes um, to her at this year's Pagan Spirit Gathering, June 17th through 24th in um, Illinois, as well as the Circle Sanctuary Solemn Gathering, which is happening um, in late October. So thank you all for uh, tuning in. And what music do we have taking us into Circle Talk tonight? 
Well, we're going to play a song by Arthur Hines called Set Your Spirit Free. Wonderful song. Many blessings. Lost in the middle of the human mind Trapped in a world of cover your eyes Dragging the shackles of a dreadful past Don't you worry, cause baby, you got the keys They're wrapped around you like a spinning Well, it'll never make you warm Steering backwards is not the norm Baby, it's time to set your spirit free Open up your mind, your mind, your mind Open up your mind, your mind, your mind Open up your mind, set your spirit free Open up your mind Open up your mind, your mind, your mind Open up your mind Set your spirit free Can't know what choices led to this place Seeming missteps well said Should have taught you grace You don't deserve your own Open up your mind, your mind, your mind. 
Open up your mind, your mind, your mind. Open up your mind and set your spirit free. Open up your mind, your mind, your mind. Open up your mind, your mind, your mind. Open up your mind and set your spirit free. Welcome to Circle Talk Radio, part of the Circle Sanctuary Radio Ministry Program, along with the Nature Folk Program, hosted by the Reverend Selena Fox, every Tuesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. Join us here on Tuesdays at 9 o'clock Eastern, following Selena's program, as we discuss various topics of interest to the pagan community. Circle Talk Radio is hosted on alternating weeks by Circle Minister Deborah Rose and Circle Ministers Jeanette and David Ewing. And before we begin, we'd like to express our thanks to the Witches School International and the Pagan Tonight Radio Networks for allowing Circle Sanctuary at this time to present our programming. For more information about Circle Sanctuary, please visit us on the web at www.circlesanctuary.org and visit our friends at the Witches School International at their website at www.witchschool.com. And tonight, we'll be airing a replay of a program hosted by the Circle Minister Deborah Rose while she talked to Arthur and Catherine Hines and their discussion was on Welsh witchcraft traditions. Very interesting conversation. So sit back, relax, listen in for Welsh traditions with Arthur and Catherine Hines. Well, welcome to our show. And this evening, the program with Arthur and Catherine is in tribute and memory and support of uh, Catherine Hines, who passed away this past January 30th. And we're supporting Arthur as he's going through the process of working through that loss. So we just ask everybody to keep Arthur in your in your hearts, keep the prayers and energy going to him and the strength, and keep him in your mind as we uh, listen to this tonight in support of Arthur and in tribute of Catherine. Thank you. And welcome to Circle Talk Radio, part of the Circle Sanctuary Radio Ministry Program, along with the Nature Folk Program, hosted by the Reverend Selena Fox, every Tuesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. Join us here on Tuesdays at 9 o'clock Eastern, following Selena's program, as we discuss various topics of interest to the pagan community. Circle Talk Radio is hosted on alternating weeks by Circle Minister Deborah Rose and Circle Ministers Jeanette and David Ewing. And before we begin, we'd like to express our thanks to the Witches School International and the Pagans Tonight Radio Networks for allowing Circle Sanctuary at this time to present our programming. For more information about Circle Sanctuary, please visit us on the web at www.circlesanctuary.org and visit our friends at the Witches School International at their website at www.witchschool.com. And tonight, we'll be airing a replay of a program hosted by the Circle Minister Deborah Rose while she talked to Arthur and Catherine Hines and their discussion was on Welsh witchcraft traditions. Very interesting conversation. So sit back, relax, listen in for Welsh traditions with Arthur and Catherine Hines. Well, welcome to our show, everyone. This show, Circle Talk, is what um, Dave said, part of the Circle Sanctuary's radio ministry. 
You'll find us here each night at 8 p.m. Central and 9 o'clock Eastern. My name is Deborah Rose, and I'm going to be your host tonight. Tonight, we'll be continuing our series on different pagan traditions. Our topic tonight will explore Welsh Bardic tradition of Wicca. And joining us tonight to talk about this exciting topic is Arthur and Catherine Hines. They are the featured presenters this year at Circle Sanctuary's Green Spirit Festival. This festival, also known as Blanus or Lunasad, is the ancient Celtic fire festival marking the height of summer and the first reaping of the harvest. It's held August 1st through 3rd at Circle Sanctuary's Nature Reserve, excuse me, Preserve near Barneville, Wisconsin. For more information, go to circlesanctuary.org. Let me tell you about tonight's very special guest. Arthur Hines is a singer-songwriter whose most recent CD, released this summer, is Dance in the Fire. Since 1996, Arthur has been part of the Georgia-based Celtic and pagan band Emerald Rose, which he plays the guitar, percussion, as well as sings, and I have all their CDs, and they're excellent. In his solo work, he explores a wide array of musical genres, including folk, rock, jazz, and, of course, his specialty, which is Celtic. Um, He's a student of poetry, storytelling, and the bardic path. Catherine, his lovely wife, has written more than 40 young adult books on ancient medieval and modern cultures, and she's the co-founder of the the mythological handbook, Magic of the Celtic God and Goddesses. Other recent books include her poetry collection, Candle, Thread, and Flute, and a six-book series on fantastic creatures in literature and mythology and folklore. Dragons, mermaids, unicorns, water monsters, phoenix, griffins, and phoenixes. And look for her new book coming out this summer called Healer's Choice, her first novel. Catherine and Arthur are founders of the Welsh Bardic tradition of Wicca. Welcome, Arthur and Catherine. Well, hello. Thank you. Good to be here. So I am very excited to have you since I've recently seen you at PSG. Well, it, but we love PSG. It's a it's a great place to meet and be and uh, recharge and grow and share. It's, we, we just love PSG. Tell me a little bit about um, what drew you to paganism or did you grow up pagan or how did it start for you two? Um Okay, I guess I'll go first. Uh, well, I, I did not grow up pagan. I grew up Methodist. And I was at, I actually had my application for seminary all filled out. I was going to be a Methodist <laughs> minister. And so I had always felt a calling to ministry, uh, obviously. But um, as I was getting ready to send in my application, I, I suddenly realized that I was actually not in fact Christian. So <laughs> being a Methodist minister was probably not the best career choice. Um, and uh, I, I, for example, I had one of my uh, kind of sponsors for ordination warn me about the dangers of pantheism uh, oh. because I was very much into nature spirituality even when I was trying very hard to be Christian. So um, I came to paganism uh, really through mythology and literature. I had read all of the Arthurian stories when I was a teenager, and I loved them. And when I got to college, I had a fantastic professor 
um, we were reading Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and she uh-huh. brought in uh, Celtic mythology um, and discussed how a lot of the sources of the Arthurian material were in this Celtic mythology, in this Welsh mythology specifically. And so I started reading it and really connecting with it. And then when I read Mists of Avalon, although it's totally fiction, uh, uh-huh. but the feminist retelling of the King Arthur story, I said, oh, I wish there was really something like this still today. And then the next book I read was Drawing Down the Moon that showed that why, why yes, there is. And then uh-huh. I went looking for it. Uh, my, my story is considerably different. I was raised UU. So uh-huh. from a religious point of view, I had a much easier path. But I come from a very hard science path. I mean, I'd had a really magical childhood and um, had a lot of connections with nature and spirits, uh, uh, nature spirits. But I left it all behind and really walked a pretty hard science path. And I was, I was in college studying genetics when a friend gave me the spiral dance. And mm-hmm. I read it, and it, um, it really spoke to something in me that I had l- buried um, and I, even, I went to a, a group in the, the town I was going to school in, and it, I just wasn't ready for it. It, it was like it, I just could not put my hard science mind behind yet. Um, and then I, um, I moved to New York to be an actor, and I found a little store there uh, called Enchantments. Back, back the, the days before Internet, it was hard to find pagans. I, mean, I, I only found the one in Athens where I went to school because I put it out in the local paper, stuck among the mundanes, desperately seeking Wicca. And someone answered it. So in New York, I, I, I stumbled upon, um, I found out, the, like, in a cold bookstore, and I went in and very trepidatiously asked, uh, you know, I, I, is there any way I could study Wicca? Is there? You know, totally terrified. Um, and they said there, there were classes, and I signed up for one on uh, Saturday. It started, like, three Saturdays later. And the Friday before I was supposed to start this uh, class on Saturday, I was tending bar, you know, I was an actor, so I'm, ten- I'm, I'm uh, tending bar. And um, my boss my boss told me, nope, you can't have Saturday off. Sorry, you got to work. I don't care. You want your job, you're coming in tomorrow. So I, I hurriedly called and switched my class at the, the store for the Sunday class. Well, I went to the Sunday class, and I've been in that class for three Sundays, and there I met Catherine. So oh. we met each other in pagan way. So we have been together from the very, very beginning with a similar symbol set and um, icons and same um, spiritual uh, um, buildings. So we, we've, we've been working partners for a very long time. Oh, Not how long. Don't make it sound old. So both of you were initially drawn to the Celtic path. Very much so. And, and the, um, the Welsh has always called to me in particular. I, I was in the SCA. My middle name is Morgan. And uh, it, it, you know, it's a Welsh name. And the man I was named after uh, was Welsh. Um, and yeah, Arthur has a, a lot, lot of Welsh, Welsh in his yeah. heritage. And I, I was in the SCA. My, my persona in the SCA was as a Welshman. Um, so I, I, when, I, when I found out cause the, that, it was, that it was Welshwick, I was going, wow. Okay, this is this is mine. Um, so it was really exciting, and as I said, it was it was obviously faded so much. And in retrospect, I was so angry at my boss, just so angry at my boss. But if I'd gone to the Saturday class, I would never have met Catherine. There so, you go. You know, 
There you go. You you just never never know. know. You never know. You never know. Well, explain to me a little bit about the basics of Welsh craft tradition. Well, we were trained in the New York Welsh tradition, which um, uh, frankly was a uh, relatively Gardnerian with um, some Welsh influences and using uh, Welsh mythology. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Using Welsh mythology. I'm just trying. I'm trying to make sure we don't talk about more than we uh-huh. all do from them. So, it, because it is an oath-bound tradition. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, but it's it's very heavily influenced. The New York Welsh tradition is very heavily influenced by Gardnerian Wicca, and um, it was uh, the New York Welsh tradition was founded by Eddie Bazinski, who was uh, kind of a, a grand old pagan with uh, Herman Slater um, at Magical Child in New York, and Back in the old days. Um, back in the old days. And uh, Eddie also went on to found the Minoan tradition. Um, so um, so he he's kind of the founder of the New York Welsh tradition. He did some studying in Wales, um, as some other people did back in the day, mm-hmm. um, and brought various flavors of Welsh, I guess I'll call it Welsh Gardnerianism. There you go. Uh, uh-huh. Over. Um, so... We we trained in this tradition, and uh, we we loved the we had teachers who were really really good at working in the moment with ecstatic energy, and they, uh, they were both they were both actors, so they were used to oh. teaching people how to get out of the way and becoming an open pipe. Yeah, which mm-hmm. is which is the key to ecstatic magic. Yeah, and and we just loved that way of working that we learned from them. So when we moved to Georgia, which is where Arthur's from, um, you know, we obviously we weren't in New York anymore. Um, and so, you know, we, we were distanced and cut off from, from our tradition, and we looked for some groups here, but we really didn't connect with anyone who worked the way that, that sang to us. So we figured if we wanted to work with people, we would have to train them to work our way. So that's what we did. And we, at that point, had not initiated high enough in the New York Welsh tradition to teach that tradition. So we decided we would take what we learned and build on it. And also we um, had been doing a lot more reading in the mythology and in Celtic culture and folklore and history. And we decided we really wanted to deepen the, um, the the Welshness of, of the tradition. So we dug into original sources. We read a lot of uh, Welsh folklore. We read a lot of, um, as far as we could. I mean, neither of us neither of us is fluent in modern Welsh, let alone a medieval Welsh or Middle Welsh. Um, uh-huh. But we worked really hard to reach the scholarly sources and avoid uh, the Lowland Press books um, and really dig into as much of the real practice as we possibly could using the terminologies. Um, uh, the In the Black Book, which is uh, one of the sources for the main um, myths of the Welsh tradition, which is the... Uh, uh-huh. the, the, black, the Black Book is uh, Merthyn poems. Okay. The White Book and the Red Book are the... Uh, the Contevin comes from a book that is black. And it's okay, the, <laughs> that's, well, that's one of the Merthyn poems. Yes. Okay, I thought you were yeah. going somewhere else. No, no, I'm no. sorry. No. <laughs> Carry on. I'll just take okay. a sip of water. So, so we were, you know, we were, we were, we were working with um, the names of the various uh, sabbats, as as we were taught to call them, um, uh-huh. and we came across 
the Welsh term for what almost everybody else calls is Belton and or Beltane. And it's uh-huh. Kentevin. The, the the ancient Welsh term for that holiday is Kentevin. And we, we know that because it um the poem uh talks about you know, the glorious of May Day and, and uh-huh. it's you know, Kentevin. So we, we broke it down um and and we, we, we use that as a springboard to begin to, to name our other feasts using a, a similar nomenclature. Yeah. So it, it literally means first of summer. Right. Um, so, um, and, you know, we we also came to, you know, working with, with tradition and original sources and folklore, um, we decided to stop using the terminology Sabbat because... Um, what we discovered in our research was that that was an absolute artifact of the early modern witch hunts and the trials and the interrogations. And the term was deliberately used by the Inquisition in order to lump witches and heretics and Jews together. Because why not not light one match? Right. So it was a way of defaming uh, both... um, Accused witches and heretics, and defaming Jews, and so. And what we found in the folklore um, and the the old literature is that these days were always called feasts. feasts. So we said, well, why the heck not? We'll call them feasts. And after all, part of the celebration is a feast. You know, we do ritual, and then we all share food and and drink together, and um, and uh, so uh, that that word in Welsh is gwyll or the plural is gwiliai. Um so since that's the word that's used in Welsh, you know, we we feel like if we're we're you know, one thing about working a tradition like this is yeah. we're not working with a dead culture. Right. They they're, they're still there. They're still speaking Welsh. Um and so, you know, it seemed to us very important also to to honor um you know, the living culture, not not just to Resurrect the bits and pieces of the medieval or ancient culture that suit us, but to really be cognizant of who these people are and what their culture is. I mean, we we don't pretend to be practicing the religion of the ancient Welsh because right. we don't know what that is truly. And some some of the aspects we do know about it, we we know that the Celts were headhunters, and that was really big in their culture. And uh, we, I, I don't intend to collect heads and set them around my uh, my doorway I, I, in niches. I, I, they, they come and t- take you away for doing things like that in, this, in these days. Exactly. So we, we're, we're going to cherry pick. We know we're going to cherry pick. Um, and there's just so many holes of, of, of what we know from archaeological point of view and, um, and anthropological point of view and mythological studies point of view of what they actually did. So we, we work hard to... To be authentic, we would hard to draw inspiration, but we also know that we're we're not pretending to be an unbroken line of ancient practice. Yeah, and I guess we should also say that uh, when we talk about uh, Welsh material and Welsh culture, um, there actually is no such people as the ancient Welsh. Um, again, um, in in our research, you know, one of the things we learned is that the word Wales, which is the name of the country, or Welsh, right. comes from Anglo-Saxon, and it means Foreigners. foreigners, them foreigners over there. Right. So the Anglo-Saxon invaders, you know, decided to start referring to the natives of the country as foreigners, um, whereas um, the what the people of what we call Wales call themselves is Cymru. And, Cymru and is the name of the the country, and it means fellow countrymen. Right. The folk. 
Yes. And there was oh. a time, there was a time when the culture that we think of as Welsh actually covered almost all of Britain. Yeah. Um, wow. It was called a, the they call it the Isle of the Mighty uh, in the literature. Um, and I mean, the the people who are now in Scotland mostly related to Irish. The, the Irish came over and planted themselves in that area. But before that, it was is um, it was far more people far more related to those now in Wales. Yeah. So the. Um so the Welsh language, which is we call it a Welsh tradition, because um, even when we talk about it in English, because we're talking about it in English, um, we uh-huh. have a Welsh name for it where we don't call it Welsh. We call it Tradiodor Bardur Kimrig. So how's that? So that's there you that's, go. I won't yeah, repeat so, that, but thank you. <laughs> it's easier when we're talking about it to people to call it Welsh. The Welsh um, border tradition, yeah. But um, the the language that we refer to as Welsh is actually the modern form of the language that was spoken in the entire island of Great Britain, or it's one <laughs> dialect of mm-hmm. one dialect, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and actually, there are, well, it's a couple dialects. So yeah. there, are, there are two dialects of Welsh, <laughs> uh, modern Welsh. So anyway, um, I'm. In case you didn't figure it out already, I'm a real language geek. <laughs> Honestly, um, and Kath and I are really good partners. Um, she tends to be, you know, um, uh, we tend to break uh, gender stereotypes along these lines. She's uh, very linear. Um, uh-huh. I'm more global. Uh, I tend to be more mystical. She tends to be more analytical. Um, uh-huh. And so we really balance each other very, very well as as far as our scholarship and imagery goes. Um, and we really use all those skills together in trusting each other to – we do it all the time, but especially in, in crafting um, the tradition that we walk together. And, and that kind of balance is really, that's one of the, the keys to our tradition. It's one of the features uh-huh. that we were taught in New York Welsh tradition is, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of Wiccan traditions are very female dominant, um, which makes a certain amount of sense um, in terms of compensating for the damages of patriarchy. But right. our, our tradition is very much about balance, um, not just gender balance, all kinds of balance, but um, gender or polarity balance is um, kind of foundational, and it is um, it is, and is very authentically Celtic because uh-huh. if you look at um, ancient um, uh, Romano-British and Romano-Gaulish statuary. Um, over and over and over again, we see goddess and god pairs. Yep, yep, yep. Um, and mm-hmm. and interestingly, the goddess always has a Celtic name, a Gaulish or British name, and the god usually has a double name. Yeah. Um, so he's got a, a Celtic name and a Roman name. So you get things like Mars Lupetius. Um, so which tells us that you know. The, the native Celts of that area referred to this deity as Lucetius. The Romans showed up and said, oh, this guy's kind of like Mars. Okay, that's who he is. Okay, he has two names. Cool. Yeah, <laughs> so that, that Roman uh, syncretism at work. But it's left us a lot of evidence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Romans, for for all the ill they did, at least you know they generally didn't plow under other people's religions. They... Um, Co-opted them. They, you know, they added adapted to them. them. Yeah. They, they added to they. They said, "Hey, we can use this. <laughs> we'll just change some of the names." Yeah. <laughs> so we now understand a little bit about what you mean by Welsh. 
Um, what do you mean by bardic in your tradition? Well, um, all things come from the word. Um, and the, by the word, I don't mean, well, I guess it, 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 it's In a, the beginning in, was the word. And the actually, word was with God and the word was God. Except that that is kind of what we mean. <laughs> um, all things are vibration. Um, we work with vibration constantly. We work with uh, words that flow from that vibration, and most importantly, we work from the myths that flow from those words. Um, one of the definitions of ritual is an enacted myth. And, and one of the definitions of myth is, or mythos, is the words that are spoken during ritual. So when uh-huh. when we perform a ritual, um, all, all of our rituals have at their core a story. And it's a story that relates to either the place on the wheel that, that, we, that we celebrate um, uh-huh. or the event that the ritual uh, celebrates. And uh, any chants that are in that circle flow out of the, the meat and the meaning of the story. Um, we have set stories that we tell at each of the, the spokes of the wheel, the feasts. And even though it's the same story um, every year that we tell at a particular feast, um, every year that that comes back around, the story can be very different depending – I mean, it just really depends on, on, on how the god and the goddess – uh, want to express that story at that particular feast. It can be very different, even though it's the exact same story. Yeah, telling telling a story is so much different from reading a story. Um, uh-huh. You know, when when you're telling a story, um, it, it's very process oriented, and you are in the moment, and everyone's in the moment with you, and you know, there's you know, group energy and seasonal energy, like all the, I mean, it's like any live performance, you mm-hmm. know. There, There's this energy feedback. But this is with changed. magical intent and divine presence. And so as a group, when the story is told, you, you, you create this um, ephemeral moment that exists only as as a whole being part of everyone present. And will it never happen again quite like it did at that moment. Um, uh-huh. It's it's the magic of the spoken word, yeah. um, and and it just nothing matches it. And very often, when you're um, telling a story, um, you in the as you're telling it, you'll suddenly realize some meaning or connection that exists in that story that that you never picked up when you were reading the written words. We, you know, the, the, the group, we should talk about the Mabinogi some. Yep. Um, the collection of tales that we work from mostly is called the Mabinogi, sometimes called the Mabinogian. And I will say this before we go into it. Someone asked me once uh, who was studying with us, what do we do when we're done studying the Mabinogi? And um, we just both looked at each other and laughed hysterically because, well, as she said, we're still finding insights and uh, discoveries. Yeah. Right. Um, You're never done with it. Right. Now the Mabinogi is a tantalizing thing. Um, what we have is uh, described as four branches of the Mabinogi, and very, very clearly there used to be a Peter Kenke Mabinogi. Right, there used to be many, many more branches um, uh-huh. because there's some stories that mention other tales, and the hearer of those of these stories, as they were told, would clearly know what those tales would be, and yet we don't know what they are. Yeah. Um, they're gone. They're just lost. The tales are written down pretty late as far as the preserving of ancient tales go. Um, mm-hmm. and they're, they're obviously were influenced from some, some continental uh, courtly love influences. However, they weren't written down by overly religious people. Um, yeah, unlike the, the Irish mythology, which was almost entirely recorded by monks 
most of the Welsh right. mythology was um, recorded by lay people, and um, and the um, the four branches. There's actually some very persuasive evidence that they were written down or at least commissioned by um, a Welsh princess um, named Gwenllian, whose father and husband were both, uh, and she as well. They were they were all Welsh freedom fighters at the time when England was really making major inroads into Wales and, and uh-huh. give, um, you know, driving the final uh, blows into Welsh independence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the, the impression, I mean, like my, my imaginative reconstruction anyway, is that um, whether it was Gwendolyn or someone else, they were clearly of, you know, a more kind of elite social rank, um, and that they were p- perhaps, you know, seeing their culture, their country under threat, realizing that their their old stories and songs and what have you were getting lost, and were trying to remember those stories that they heard. They'd heard night, it as children. They, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, because there there are just some there are some gaps and some places in there where you just really it's how you would tell a story if you didn't quite remember it. You know, uh-huh. but you loved that story when you were a kid, but you hadn't heard it since, and you'd forgotten some of the details. Um, so, so when you read them, you have to keep all of that in mind and kind of look through the words to the tale that obviously sits beneath the veneer. Uh, you have to look through the the mistakes, the additions, and, and just, you know, the point of view that the person who recorded it had um, – now, if, if you read like like the Irish tales, you have to, they're recorded earlier, so in some ways uh-huh. they're closer to the source, and yet they're recorded by heavy, heavy religious people who who altered some of the tales to fit more closely their religious views. Yes, this happened on the day that Christ was crucified. So uh, stuff like that. You know, exactly. You get that in the Irish tales. Um, in in the Welsh ones, again, the, they were I think they were recorded in a courtly milieu. And at a time when um, courtly romance was the vogue all over Europe, like the the King Arthur stories, the romances were translated into every European language, even Icelandic. Um, And so there's a real clear courtly romance influence. So you have beautiful ladies wearing gold brocade and, Mm -hmm. um, um, you know, and... uh, you know, kind of recalling the the whole Arthurian, her arm clothed in purest white, same right. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, so you know, if you but there are so obviously um, these stories are so resonant with uh, what we know of more ancient mm-hmm. times in Celtic culture that. Right. You know, it's it's fascinating because you can see these stories, even after people didn't think that they were about gods and goddesses. They couldn't let them go. Obviously, it was so right. important to who they were as a people. So they kept telling the stories, and the stories kept, you know, picking up stuff from the culture of the time. Um, you know, really much the way that we keep retelling stories. You know, um, Maleficent. Mm-hmm. For example, right. mm-hmm. yeah. to take a very recent example. So, I mean, we use these stories. We learn life lessons from these stories. We we walk through personal transformation uh, with guides from these stories. Um, they really are central to our religious path. Um, 
And, I, you know, we, we talk about them in a very scholarly, researching fashion, but the truth is our, our path is one, it's an ecstatic path. It's an ecstatic uh-huh. mystery tradition. Um, and so when when we're actually in the middle of a circle, we're not worrying about uh, what particular translation we're dealing with. We're in the middle of chanting the name and using, we we start with these structured chants and then slowly the group uh-huh. breaks it apart and, and all the different parts arise up in a sort of organic, magical fugue. Um, uh, we work very hard to to speak names of power correctly. We work very hard to take the Welsh deities, gods and goddesses, and speak their names uh, with the correct Welsh pronunciation because we think names have power and uh-huh. um, if someone calls me Artie, I don't tend to respond to them. <laughs> My name is Arthur. Thank you much. And 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 that that by the way is his given name. That is Yeah, is, my, Arthur, I was born. My mama named me Arthur. That's where my magical name came from. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was very fortunate to witness um at PSG this year a beautiful um hand fasting that you all did. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Was that performed um, in the mythos of your tradition? Very much so. Yeah. You, you saw your Welsh Bardic tradition circle in front of you is what you did. Um, normally, the only, the only thing that didn't happen, there would have been a chant that flowed out of the story that we told, and there would have, uh-huh. been, um, there, there would have been no spectators. <laughs> um, everyone uh-huh. would have been in the circle. Everyone would have been enchanting. Everybody would have been dancing, and everyone would have been contributing to the whole organic, ecstatic raising of power. Right. Um, like if it, if it were one of the rituals for the for one of the eight feasts, or the moon, or, or right. the moon. Yeah. But since you know this was a rite of passage ritual, right. instead of chanting for the magic, you know the magic was the hand fast, right. the binding of the uh-huh. couple, and, yep. and and so on. Um, but but you know other that that was our our standard structure circle casting quarter calls and um you know and and so you saw um when you attended the ritual that the central place that story played in it and um one of the reasons for this and it and, and I just I want to back up for just one second and um okay. Arthur was saying yes when we're in ritual we're not thinking about all this scholarly background and everything but um my experience anyway is that if you do the research um, and all of that foundational work, um, then that really frees you up to when you're in ritual right. to just... It's the framework. Yeah. Yeah. Right. To just be in the moment. Yeah, and, and go with the flow. But you've got all that supporting you. And in um, in Celtic mythology, um, uh-huh. two, there are two things that go on. Um, one is... Um, there are a couple different ways that the ancient and medieval um, Irish and Welsh categorized stories, and one of them was they categorized them by theme. So they would have uh-huh. lists of stories. These are journeys. These are visions. These are uh-huh. wooings. These are marriages. These are births. And um, and from other uh, testimony about um, storytellers and poets in um, ancient and medieval times, it's clear that one reason they categorized the stories these in this way is because part of the storyteller's social function was if if you go to a, a christening or a baby blessing, um, you tell a story about 
you know, the the birth or childhood of a great hero. In, in, in the same way that in Christian weddings, there there are like some psalms that are right. always read, you know, and because they just are. Right, like like a lot of Christian weddings always tell the story of the marriage at Cana. Right, right, right. And and in that same way, the the bards and lesser storytellers uh, celebrated the rites of passage um, for for everyday life. Because there's this constant sense that there is an analogy between the divine world, the world of the gods, and our human world. And and there's a mirroring that goes on constantly. And the other thing um, in connection with that that we see in a lot of the old stories is they'll describe something, whether it's a good, bad, or neutral thing, and then... The, the story will say, and that was the first time that anyone ever did X. And so uh-huh. come, uh-huh. that will flow through their everyday magic as, as, as Mary did this, so I will do this. As mm-hmm. Brigitte did this, so I will do this. Um, so invoking the name of the higher one into your everyday activity and, and uh, enchanting it with the power of the word. So story is also a way to really bring the divine presence um, into human life and to to um, enact uh, the idea that everything we do as humans, you know, has its counterpart in the other world, you know, as above, so below. Uh-huh. As And as below, so above. Yep. You know, the, 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 you know, there's, not a hard and firm separation um, in Celtic thought between the divine and human worlds. They are interdependent. Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh. They they need one another, and they nurture one another. Um, so, you know, for a wedding, we we tell a story about you know a, a we tell a wooing story yep. and uh, or an elopement, uh, marriage story, depending yes. on the nature. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was. Absolutely breathtaking. Thank so you. So it Thank was you. just absolutely beautiful. So I know we've talked a little bit about some of the rites of passage and that um, you celebrate the will of the year. Um, tell me a little about, is um, is magic a part of this tradition? Yes. Yes, it is, and we definitely teach it. Um, um, and we definitely, it's um, it's not for a casual use, um, we teach that it is to be used when mundane paths fail um, because uh-huh. it's actually more work than working the mundane path. Um, uh-huh. We do treat it as a, a real thing, um, but it is, uh, uh, here's, here's my theory on how magic works, and this is, um, this is not science guy. Science guy, science guy, <laughs> science guy. Okay. Um, in quantum mechanics, one, one of the possible Ramifications. You, you, uh, you. Uh, this tale of Schrodinger's cat shows. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, but it. The when when in Tell us. right when when a an atom decays uh, through radioactive decay um, uh-huh. because of the the weird way that quantum uh, uh, physics works, um, you actually have to have. There's a thing called a probability wave, okay? There's like a hanging in limbo. It hasn't manifested into reality yet. And Uh it won't manifest into reality until someone observes it, until an observer looks at it, and then it uh, collapses into reality, and either the atom decays or it doesn't, okay? 
So the thought experiment that Schrodinger ran was this. You have this atom waiting to decay. And if it does decay, it breaks a a pellet poison. Okay? If it doesn't decay, it doesn't break that pellet of poison. And you put this pellet poison and and the atom into a box. And in the box, you put a cat. And you seal the box. So okay. coming from quantum mechanics, here's your quandary. Is a cat alive or dead? Until you open that box, you won't know. That's our obvious obvious point of view from normal right. everyday physics. But from a quantum point of view, the answer is neither. Okay, The cat is neither uh, dead nor alive until you observe it. Because by observing, you force the probability wave to collapse into manifestation. And mm-hmm. either it launches a poison and kills a cat, or it doesn't. Now, one of the possible. I think, by the way, I really think it should be Schrodinger's rat. Or Any, okay. Some other anyway, animal. anyway, anyway, you're distracted. Right. So, Thank you, Catherine. The, one, Go ahead. <laughs> one of the possible things about that is that um, is it one of the ways to solve that dilemma, that paradox, is that it's not neither, it's both. Mm-hmm. Both happen, and there's a split in timeline. In one timeline, the cat dies. In the other timeline, the cat lives. And in each action, each decision, each observation splits that timeline into more and more branches. Branch, 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 branch. Uh-huh. So on, on one branch, I uh, um, take my glasses off and throw them on the ground. Another branch, I take my glasses off and throw them on the ground and stomp on them. And another, I leave my, my glasses on. In another, I don't have glasses on because I don't need them at all. Uh-huh. So... What magic does is it eases you into choosing which branch of reality you want to embrace, which one of those myriad universes you want to ease into. So one possibility is you get the job. One possibility is you don't get the job. Hopefully you, you want to choose the one where you get the job and it's right for you and you like it. Um, so when you cast your spell and do all, do all the work ahead of time, you're choosing which of those multiple realities that you, that you step into. Um, and that's my operating theory about how magic works. However, once again, when I'm in the middle of it, I'm not doing any of that. I'm seeing my candles, I'm smelling the incense, I'm chanting my chants, and I'm dancing my heart out um, to manifest that that shift in reality. Um, So one thing, um, so our approach to magic also is that Uh um, you can't just do magic. You have to do... Um, the mundane work you yep. have to do the the you know the necessary manifest work you can't just do magic to get the perfect job and you know I, I without totally sending agree. out resumes or you know Absolutely. you've got you've got to use all your tools yeah um kind of the idea you know in a sense the gods help those who help themselves yep. in, in uh-huh. a sense um and um and the uh, the other thing that is part of our kind of philosophy of doing magic is when when we're working in a group um like for the for the eight feasts um, uh-huh. that that magic is not aimed toward the personal it's aimed outward um it's aimed toward um attunement with that particular um point on the wheel of the year um, it's aimed toward bringing that energy into wider manifestation. Uh, if we want to do some, 
some kind of personal magic, that sort of thing, we we will reserve for the moons or for purely individuals. And ultimately, the reason why we're on this path, the reason why uh-huh. we work magic, the reason why we seek enlightenment is not just for the sake of doing those things. It's so that we can become sharper tools for divine manifestation. Our whole purpose on earth is to manifest the divine. Um, uh-huh. Our whole purpose in training, becoming clergy, and working magic is to improve ourselves enough that we can totally bring that vibration of sacredness into the wider manifestation. So if if you were at PSG last year and attended the main ritual, um, yes. last year Arthur and I did that ritual, which was not yes. a Welsh Wiccan Not ritual. at all. We, we, we tried to make it. We Not were, Wiccan. We try to make it pan-Celtic, so um, right. so that it would be as inclusive as possible. Because, you know, it was for everyone, not just for our tradition. Right. But um, the whole theme of of the magic that we did in that ritual was this very idea, which is just our kind of our is our core philosophy that we are the hands of the gods, uh-huh. um, and so. As you may remember, that was the chant that we ended that with, we ended with mm-hmm. in right. that ritual and the idea that we tried to send people forth with. Because, again, it's, uh, you know, we are here on this plane. Um, um, if the gods are going to manifest on this plane, it's through us. Yep. Um, and so we work to make ourselves the best possible tools for them. And uh, speaking about that, that we, um, you know, we did that ritual. We, had, we it was a marvelous. It was that ritual was an initiation for us. <laughs> I will tell you that it was the largest, most overwhelming thing we'd ever done. And we had no choice but look at each other and trust the divine to walk us through that. Um, it was a marvelous experience. It's, oh. But it's it's quite daunting when you see six hundred people processing for you. <laughs> But, but I, I would I, not I, have I took, thought that that was your first large public ritual. You all that was the well, it was thought. the largest we'd ever done, and, and by yeah. far it was the largest we'd ever done. Yeah. Um, but you know, I took I took that whole the whole chance um, that we did with that, and um, I recorded it uh, as a song and and put it on my new solo CD. Um, because people kept asking us, where can we hear a recording of those chants? Yeah. So so I called it Spirit Chant. You know, it's kind of like you know. Pagan spirit, Pagan spirit yeah, gathering. spirit chant, yeah. and it's it's one of the songs on uh, my CD, Dance on the Fire. Uh, which shameless commercial. Shameless, plug. Well, you know, we're supposed to talk about. No, but it's it's, it's on my list. It's on my list. And where <laughs> could we get that CD if we wanted it, Arthur? The easiest way to go is to CD Baby. CD Baby is okay. one of the musicians' best friend. They they pay us well and they treat us well. CDBaby.com.com and just look for Arthur Hines. And uh, Emerald Rose stuff is also on there. You know, I've, a lot of music in Emerald Rose, and Emerald Rose is still busy. We're recording another CD right this very instant. Well, not this right this instant, but uh, you know, this this month we're recording again. So, since we're doing shameless plugs, um, I'll say also that on Arthur's new CD, he um, he did a beautiful job of recording um, one of the songs from my novel, The Healer's Choice. There are no yeah, oh. tunes for it, and uh, yeah. yeah. So he he surprised me uh, with a with a CD a while ago of he he'd set all the songs in my novel to music, and so uh, he did a spiffed up version of one yep. of them for for this CD. And if it gets made into a movie, this will be like the final credits. Yeah. Is that is that it's, kind of it's song. a closing credits? Closing credits, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Uh, there you but, go. Uh, yeah, and, and it looks like the the novel is coming out uh, probably in the fall now. Yeah, they're waiting on a good artist for the for the front cover. Yeah. Not good. Yeah, and um, I don't know. They're negotiating. She has nothing to do with that. So yeah. <laughs> Um, the pu- the publishers decided fall is a better yeah. time to bring yeah. it out for various yeah. reasons, yeah. but it's it's coming. Yeah. So what else? Well, we have a few minutes, I think. Do you want to ask uh, us about anything else? I have a quick else? question. I know that you've been involved in the pagan community for a while. What changes have you seen over the last several years? Have you noticed any changes? I know myself, I've noticed a lot more diversity among pagan pasts. Oh, the Internet changed everything. The Internet transformed paganism um, from what was uh, hard to find. It, you had to be brave to look for it. Because most uh-huh. of the stores were scary. Yep. <laughs> Deliberate, like, so so there, there, there was, it was kind of a self-selection, yeah. um, and now all you have to do is Google it in the privacy of your yep. own home. Um, uh, so it's more widespread. Um, when we came up, it was pretty much strictly an initiatory tradition, um, right. and and now it, it just isn't mostly. Um, I think the term Wicca has been transformed from what the meanings it used to have into something totally different, and there's nothing we can do about that. It is what it is. Um, uh, I'm I'm making faces. Yes. I mean, we're really we're old school coven trained witches. That's really what we are, and um, there are not as many as those as there used to be. We're certainly a, a small, small percentage. Um, I mean, there was a discussion on a on a list on Facebook a while back about you know, here I am, I'm uh, I, I, I'm a witch, and in the larger uh, community, um, I'm definitely not in a place of power. That's for sure. But all of a sudden, within the pagan community, I'm like a place of privilege, you know. I'm already uh-huh. – I'm a white guy, okay? So I'm in a place of privilege, a larger community, but I'm in this, like, weird fringe religions, you know, so that kind of balances out. So in the in the sphere of this weird fringe religion, all of a sudden I'm a privileged guy again. It's it's weird. It's very weird. Although I think there, there are a lot of – because of the diluting of the understanding of what Wicca is uh-huh. – um, that I think there has been a lot of deprivileging yep. uh, of of Wiccan, Wicca and Wiccans, and I tell me about I that. Don't know. I don't. Tend I, to I think if I think if you talk to some talk to reconstructionist people, they would ar- they would argue with you about that, uh, my lovely wife. Well, I don't know, but what I do, what the the, the reason I was making faces earlier is because I I really, ha- I mean, I think there are. So many glorious, wonderful forms of paganism and earth-centered spirituality and 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 traditional religion, and I I love and celebrate them all. Um, and um, but I really have a problem when people say, as as you read in some you know recent or current books or blog posts and what have you, as Wicca is anything you want it to be, because it's not. <laughs> Um, Wicca is not the only way to be pagan, but Wicca is there. There are specific hallmarks of Wicca, and you don't have to do Wicca. Um, but don't call it Wicca if you're doing something totally different. Exactly. Right. I'm all. I, I I believe in truth in advertising. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I, you know, when we were being trained, all we knew was traditional coven initiatory right. Wicca. We didn't even know pagan festivals existed. And there weren't many of them. Uh-huh. No. Um, 
uh, we when we moved to Georgia, that's uh, we had some some dear friends who introduced us to the wonderful world of pagan festivals, and uh-huh. and 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 we couldn't be be more pleased to be part of of that world as well as you know keeping our our roots in the the initiatory Wicca that we we grew up in. Yep. I really, really want to thank you. And Arthur is king of the Britons. You didn't mention that, so I thought I would just throw that out. And if you, and if you come to PSG, you will definitely understand that. So um, I have been so pleased, and we didn't get to half the things that I wanted to talk about tonight. So well, I don't know if you noticed or not. We, we, we could teach a seminar on most of the single questions you had on that piece of paper. So. <laughs> Well, I'm just so excited that you all were here tonight. And um, again, are there um, if someone wants to explore um, Welsh Bardic tradition or the Welsh tradition, are there books or how will they go about that studying that for themselves? Well, I would recommend uh, Magic of the Celtic Gods and Goddesses to start because um, okay. it talks about um, how to. Um, say the Welsh names correctly and how to approach the deity and uh, rituals to perform to get to know them? Um, the Magic of the Celtic Gods and Goddesses is a book that I did with a co-author, and he wrote all the Irish stuff. Okay. Um, so I am have, like, no, you know, that's that's not my deal. Um, but I wrote all the chapters on Welsh British and Gaulish. Both gods and goddesses, not just the goddesses. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote all the Welsh, Gaulish, and British stuff, and I wrote um, the like historical background chapter. Mm-hmm. I wrote a story on tor- st- uh, a chapter on storytelling, and uh-huh. a chapter on doing devotionals to get to know the deities. Um, and that that book really summarizes a lot of our approach yeah. and our understanding of, of these deities. And, and there's a bibliography. There's a pretty extensive bibliography in that book. Yeah. So to tell you where else to go. Of course, you want the Mabinogi, and we have translations that we prefer. Um, uh-huh. But um, quickly, the, the best translations of the Mabinogi are by Patrick Ford, um, which is published by University of California Press, and by Shona Davis. That's S-I-O-N-E-D-D-A-V-I-E-S, Shona Davis. She's uh, Welsh. Um, and that's published by Oxford University Press. Okay. And Thanks. those are both current and excellent translations. All right. And that will help our listeners um, take a step on the path if that's something they're interested in exploring. And they can always come to PSG and find us and uh, question us there. Or yeah. come to Green Spirit Festival for llamas. Indeed. Absolutely. <laughs> We'll be doing some workshops. If you come to Green Spirit Festival uh, August 1st through 3rd, you can meet Arthur and Catherine in person. Um, Go to www.circlesanctuary.org for more information. Um, Thank you, Deb. I'd like to thank Dave, our sound engineer, for his technical expertise. Thank you, Dave. He did a great job. Uh, we'd like to thank Pagans Tonight on Blog Talk Radio for hosting. And I'd like to thank all of you, our listeners out there. And I will um, tell you, author, on the um, chat, they are definitely voting for you for king. 
Ted? <laughs> well, I also have a YouTube channel. You can check stuff out there. I make videos of Emerald Rose songs and my songs, so you can check that out too and have fun. And um, and I'm on Goodreads.com. That's another place to find me. And we'd like to extend our thanks, and I think it would be fitting for us to extend them in Comrag. So, Jokadhar. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> One spirit in the dark, like a candle wavers. Many spirits joined as one, burned with the power of the blazing sun.
Listening to Pagans Tonight. Pagans Unite on Pagans Tonight. Many paths, one network. For over five years, we've been the place to connect with the best, brightest, and most trusted voices in the pagan world. Every night is Pagans Tonight. 